Back in 2010, our family visited the land of uh, our ancestors. I say that a little bit hyperbically. Um, but I took our kids and we all went down to Blue Ridge and Ellijay, um, Georgia, in that area. There's several little towns with names. And we visited the grave sites and the houses and the cemeteries and the places where my dad and his dad and his dad probably all grew up. We did visit where my mom grew up uh, as well. But this is a picture really of a, of a couple of moments we had. It's a little odd getting pictures made by tombstones. We don't do that every day. So it's a little odd there. But this is about nine years ago. Uh, there's kind of the namesake for our family there in the top left. Of course, Brandon was named after someone from my dad's side. And so that's her grave marker. Uh, the one on the right, who knows what they're doing there, right? We just, <laughs> but also was able to get a picture and see uh, the man that I was named after. He was mayor in that town for a bit. His name's Rufus Theodore Stiles. I'm glad my parents went with Roger Todd instead of Rufus Theodore. Are you with me? Uh, but he's up there in the corner, and of course, that's his tombstone. So we spent the day just looking around the town and visiting houses and, and places where uh, my dad and his dad and his grandfather all spent some time. And you know, when we left there, it was more than just a trip to see names, even though that's what we saw. It was more than just a trip to see tombstones, grave markers, and cemeteries. We came away with a, a lot larger picture, a, a bigger view of like, wow, what God's been doing in our family. There were stories, there were events. It became something larger than just the names we saw. Are you with me? And so I want you to kind of have that picture in mind as we go to Matthew 1. Because for the month of December, we're gonna spend our time in a portion of scripture where there are a lot of names. But I don't want you coming away with just a list of names because there's so much more here than just names. We find stories and events and history that, watch this, they point to, to a larger, bigger name. They point to a more important, deeper name. That's God's name. And the genealogies in Matthew chapter one are just that. They're so much more than, general, than just a list of names. They are actually a collection of stories that tell about God's work in his people's history. And that's why I've been saying to you for a few weeks, this is more than simple chronology. This is actually very deep theology. In fact, today we're going to look at, at God's sovereign grace in the first six verses. Next week, we're going to see God's preserving power in verses six through about 11. On the third week of December, we'll see the, uh, God's singular purpose in about verses 12 through 17. And on Christmas Eve, we'll come back and look at verses 18 through 25 and see God's final fulfillment. All of this is a list of names and things that point us to something far bigger and greater than just names. And so we're going to kind of root ourselves right here in Matthew 1. A few other things about Matthew 1 you ought to know. If you were to take the chapter and divide it in half, I would say to you, it looks like this, that verses 1 through 17 are Christ human hereditary or human heredity. And verses 18 through 25 would be his divine heredity. You can kind of see that as it's laid out. We're going to take our time this morning and notice just some things in the first section, which is verses one through six. Also about this chapter, it does have three sections to it, at least verses one through 17 do. You'll notice them, right? There's verses one through six 
and then about 6 through 11 and 12 through uh, 16 or 17. It's because this is really a, a poetic, numeric type of defense. And so I want to take some time and give you the general picture of these first 17 verses, all right? Before we dive into verses 1 through 6, let me just give you a general picture of these first 17, what is known as the genealogies. It's in three sections, and you'll notice that verse 17 gives us a summation of the entire genealogy. Would you look at this final verse with me? Verse 17, in this uh, kind of caps, uh, capsulating all three sections, it says this, that all the generations from Abraham to David were, how many? 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, they were how many? 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, there were how many? 14 generations. And so if you take that verse, it summarizes the first 16 verses. Watch what I'm saying. Verses 1 through 6, there are 14 names there. Verses 6 through 11, 14 names. And verses 12 through 16, 14 names. Now, let me be intellectually honest with you. There are more than 14 times 3. There are more than those amount of names in the genealogy. So why then did Matthew just choose three sets of 14? Because he's using a poetic literary tool to make good use of David's name. Because the genealogy here, from a, a um, human point of view, it centers around David. It's his throne. It's all pointing to him. He's kind of the centerpiece. From a theological point of view, it centers around Christ. And from a poetic point of view, it centers around the number 14. Here's why. If you take David's name and take the Hebrew consonants, which would be D, V, and D, and then equate them to what the Hebrews gave would be their numerical value. So each Hebrew consonant had a numerical value. D's were, were four and V's were six. So if you add those up, you come up with what? 14. And so this is a kind of a Hebrew poetic way to bring attention to David and his throne and theologically to the fact that Christ is the one who rightfully will sit on that throne. And so that's why this is really more than just a list of names. It's a picture. It's a, it's a poem about God's work in Israel's history. And it goes in three sections, each with 14 pointing to David's throne and then saying to every Jew who would rightfully ask, should Jesus sit on that throne? And Matthew's answer is unequivocally, by all means, yes. And he shows both a poetic and a numeric defense of Jesus' legal line to the throne of David. So that's what's going on in these 16 verses. I'd remind you, if you go to Luke 3, you'll find another genealogy. But there, that isn't the royal line. That's the bloodline. And so there's the difference here. Luke traces the bloodline of Christ. Matthew chases, traces the royal line of Christ. And here we have just a clear, concise defense, we'll call it, in a poetic fashion of Christ's rightful place on the throne of David. So that's what's happening in these three verses. That's more of the general picture. If you were to look at the beginning section from Abraham to David, it's taken up in the first six verses. So let's begin and let's read these and let's see what God would teach us about himself through this list of names and, and see what emerges for us. We'll begin in verse one if we dare tackle these names. You ready? Let's go for it. Matthew 1, 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He begins now in verse two with Abraham. He says, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, 
and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amenadab, and Amenadab the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. So, wow, Todd, what do we pull from these list of 14 names, these six verses? Like, I don't see much about God in there at all. I'm glad you asked. Because I want to draw our attention to four names, three of them being women, that actually were not insiders. In fact, I would call them outsiders. But I would say to you, in fact, they really, they, they weren't Jewish at all. I mean, this is tracing the history of God's people, and yet already in the first six verses, we've got a list of four names who weren't even Jewish. Like, how'd they get in there? Three of them, of course, are women, and they're Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth. The other one I would challenge you with is the one Abraham, which, by the way, just ask this question. Was Abraham a Jew? Well, you say, of course he was. He was the father of Jews, but he actually lived in the Ur of the Chaldees, which is like modern-day Iraq. He was a Chaldean. So did he become a Jew when God called him? Did God make him a Jew, or was he a Jew? Those are all good questions to ask. We don't have an answer. I'm just saying Abraham wasn't in the, the line already. It started with him, and God just called him out of this Chaldean countryside and said, Abraham, follow me. So there's these four, we'll call them outsiders, these specific names. Let me talk about them for a minute with you. Abraham, he was an idolater. In fact, he was living with his father uh, in the land of Ur. Genesis 12 talks about this. Joshua talks about how he worshiped the, the various heavenly bodies with his whole family. And so when God called Abraham to leave, he was calling him out of that life of idolatry, worshiping things like the moon and the sun, and calling him to worship Yahweh only. This was God's call to Abraham. And Abraham did nothing to deserve this call. He did nothing to earn it. He didn't call God first. All we know is that Abraham's kind of minding his own business in this land of idolatry. And God graciously says, Abraham, follow me. He extends his gracious call. Interesting, isn't it? And he begins his work with his people through this singular man named Abraham. As you move forward in history, you find that Tamar was the wife of Judah's oldest son. Now, Judah's the fourth son of Jacob. It's the tribe of Judah and the line of David. So that's why he's mentioned here as opposed to perhaps the first son. So Judah's the son that uh, is the uh, tribe through which Christ is going to be coming. Judah's oldest son's name is Ur, E-R. He marries Tamar. Um, no kids are born. And so when he dies as a punishment from God, the second son marries Tamar. And you can read next about what happens between him and Tamar and how God punishes that second son for his actions. And so the third son's in line. Make a long story short, no kids are ever born. And so the line looks like it might be in danger. So Tamar poses as a prostitute. And guess who of all people succumbs to temptation gives into this prostitute on the side of the road, it is Judah, her father-in-law. She conceives, and when they realize she's pregnant, the village, the town says, we should stone her. Judah agrees until she brings forth evidence that Judah's the father. Then suddenly, Judah commutes her sentence, <laughs> conveniently, right? 
Tamar has twins and the line continues. Now, am I the only guy in the room thinking, there's a better way to keep the line intact than that? <laughs> Surely I'm not. Are you following me? We're finding that this line is filled with outsiders who like, they weren't seeking after God. Tamar was a Canaanite woman, er, married. Let's move forward in Israel's history. Here's Rahab. She's living in Jericho, which is the oldest city on the earth. The first stop in Israel's conquest of Canaan. She's a Canaanite, but she hears that Israel's on the march and their, their God is greater than the other gods. So in some fashion, before they go to march around the city and before the battle ensues, she hides the spies and in some way responds to this, this call of God. Like, hey, yeah, I'm here, Yahweh saying, believe in me. She responds. Her house is saved. She becomes part of the family of Israel as a Canaanite Jerichoite. Let's move forward. Ruth, a Moabitess, not an Israelite, married in, famine ensues. What's she gonna do? She kind of then becomes partners with another widow. She's a widow. And, and so together they're trying to make do for themselves. God rescues them. You can read about this in Ruth. The entire book's really about that story of God's intervention in their life. And she's not even in the family of Israel, technically. But yet God brings her in. So, so I find it quite intriguing that in the first six verses, there are four names who are considered outsiders. Who were it not for God's gracious call upon them, his sovereign grace to them would never have been brought into Israel. And were they brought in under, under really great circumstances? Were they situations in which we said, you know what, you deserve to get in. You're doing an awesome job. You're worthy, not at all. Not a single one of these really uh, had any reason to claim merit or favor. And yet, they're included here in the line of Christ. They're part of the family of God. And let's just be frank. They're not the only ones, even if you consider folks who were on the inside like, let's just take Judah. I mean, Judah's not a high-standing example of morality. Can we just admit that? So here's what we're seeing, that of these four names, none were in the line already. They were outsiders. They didn't deserve anything. They didn't earn anything. So how did they get in? By God's grace alone. And to be sure, none of the others deserved to be in either. They didn't select their parents or their line they didn't ask in advance to be part of the tribe of Judah or the line of David. And frankly, if they could have, none would have done that. They too were simply recipients of God's grace. And so first family, I want you to grasp this with me. This first section, these six verses, these four names especially, this is a, a showcase of God's sovereign grace. And God's grace doesn't depend on anything but God. That's why it's sovereign, and that's why it's grace. Now, when you contemplate this and begin to meditate and mull this over, it would help to bring in some explanation from the Apostle Paul, who actually references this concept in the book of Romans. This idea of God just extending his call graciously to those to whom he will. In Romans 9, in fact, he uses some names of people who are part of this first set of six verses. He uses the name Jacob and Jacob's counterpart. Remember his name? 
Esau. And he talks about how that in God's family, it's not just because you're born a Jew that makes you his family. That's about verse six and seven, Romans nine. But it's, it's the issue of faith in God's promise. And so it's not just an offspring issue, it's a faith issue. And he says, that's why Jacob was and Esau wasn't. And he concludes by saying this in verse 16. So then it depends, watch this church, not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Wow, this is such a wonderful verse that shows us where does the new birth and where does God's call and where does grace come from? It's not because you reached out to grab it or you manufactured it, you engineered it. It's because God chose to, to lavish it upon you. It's his will, not yours. It's his gift, not your merit. John would talk about this same concept in the third chapter. In describing the conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus, look how he describes the work of the Holy Spirit in moving among people and bringing them to salvation. In other words, in bringing them from the outside to the inside, so to speak. Look how John describes this. Here's Jesus talking to Nicodemus. He says, the wind blows where it wishes. And you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So he, he relates metaphorically the spirit of God to wind that you can't control, you can't manufacture, you can't predict, but the spirit of God is moving, regenerating, calling, extending God's grace. And he does it in a way that, that's mysterious at times. We, we don't quite get it. You can't pin it down, uh, manufacture, engineer it, and yet it happens. See, in this verse, I'd be really frank with you here. I'll tell you who has the free will. It's not you. It's not me. Oh, we have a will, no doubt, but our will has never been free. Our will is either enslaved to the spirit or to sin. Here's who has the free will, the spirit of God. The spirit of God moves as he wishes, sovereignly calling people to faith. This is how God works. And this is what we see in the beginning of these six verses. God calling to those on the outside and yet by his grace bringing them to the inside. Not because of anything they did or earned or their merit, but sure because he was God and could do that with his grace. By the way, this is Nicodemus as well who took the whole book of John to finally come from the outside to the inside. It's a beautiful picture of God's sovereign grace here in these first six verses. Now, I want you to know there's a name for a doctrine that, that, that we're looking at because this, this kind of hits you heavy and hard, and it should. It should really bury all of your boasting. It should take an ax to every bit of pride that's sprouting up in our life to understand that God calls us and extends his grace because of his own sovereign will, because of his mercy. Like This is God's work, not ours. It's his to reveal, ours to respond so, so, Todd, what's, what's with that? It really strikes against my pride and boasting. There's a name for this doctrine that I want you to grasp. What's underneath every bit of this discussion? What I think is underneath verses one through six, especially in these first four names. What's kind of founding all of this is the doctrine of unconditional election. It's that God predestines. God chooses. And it's his prerogative as the potter to do that 
in regards to the clay. It's his will at work. It's his exertion, not ours. Now, in this message, I have no desire at this point to deal with election. Our church stands on that. You know that. It's in the Bible. The word is in the Bible. We may have some varying perspectives about how it's played out, but no one in our church is going to say they don't believe in election. It's clearly taught in the Bible. We stand on it. What I want to do is help you understand more about the type of election the Bible teaches. And that's called unconditional election. In other words, it's not a calling that was produced by anything you did. It's not God looking into the future and saying, you know, I saw Terry Anderson and I see that in certain year, Terry's gonna accept me as his Lord and Savior. So Terry, because of what you will do, I'll just make you one of the elect. That's what some people think. And it sounds nice to our human ears because it puts us kind of in this place where we get to boast a little bit. We get a little bit of the, of the uh, credit, but that's not how God operates. God doesn't look into the future and then say, oh, this is what you will do. So because of what you will do, here's what I will do. That's putting you in charge of the first action, isn't it? The real first action is that God, by his own grace and mercy, and because of his position as sovereign king and Lord, he chooses. And it's his prerogative and right to do that. This is called unconditional election. And this is what's playing out in these four names in Matthew 1. It's God's sovereign right to extend his grace to people on the outside. And by the way, to the rotten ones on the inside as well, amen? And simply say, it's my grace. He reveals it, we respond to it. In fact, let me show you some verses that bring some weight to this because I want you to have some good scriptural authority for this. It's not just my opinion. I'm not just bringing you my thoughts. I want you to see what the Bible would say about this. Here's some real scriptural weight to help you understand God's prerogative and right to, to extend his grace to whoever he wishes. Ephesians 1, 3, and 4, Paul would advise us to, he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now watch this next phrase. Even has he chose us in him, say it with me, before the foundation of the world. So God, by his own position and power and sovereign right, extends grace to those he wishes. We move on in our verses of, of unconditional election. Look at 2 Timothy 1.9. God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, read with me, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Look at that verse. It was his purpose and his grace. Let's keep moving forward in this understanding of unconditional election. 1 Peter 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according, say it with me, church, to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So here again, Peter echoes Paul. Help us understand, it's God's purpose. It's God's grace. It's the reservoir of God's sovereign authority and will to do what he does and to call whom he wishes. Is there one more in this line of verses? James 1.18, which may be a, a tremendous one because it starts off with just the clear facts. Say it with me. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth 
that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So with extreme politeness, but uh, equal amount of boldness, let me say to you, if you find that in your heart, you have to have some kind of credit. You've got to have some kind of, you've got to have an ounce of boasting. You've got to have a sliver that, well, hey, here's what I did. I would strongly, pastorally urge you to reconsider your spiritual condition. Because God says there will be no boasting in his presence. And for us to try to sliver in a, an ounce of like, well, here's what I did. Here's what I brought. It corrupts the cross. The Bible says it makes of no effect God's beautiful, gracious gift to us. When we, when we pollute it with our own works, even if it's just a singular, small ounce. Church, I'm, I'm bringing to you the kind of doctrine underneath the verses of these uh, in Matthew 6 that show us why in the world would Abraham or Tamar or Rahab or Ruth or others, how were they in? Because God's grace said they were. He's God. He's the potter. It's beautiful news that he owns the grace that's revealed to us. And so really, we begin to see something from these six verses that just kind of emerges. We'll call it the big idea this month. That God's grace doesn't depend on anything but God. Man, that is such a relief and a settling truth, isn't it? In fact, would you say it with me? God's grace doesn't depend on anything but God. We don't merit it. We don't stack up chips to buy it. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. We're the outsiders. Watch this, church. We're the Judas, the Rahabs, the Tamars. We're the Abrahams. And in God's gracious, sovereign wisdom, at some point, he extended to you his call to trusting. He revealed it, and you responded. And let's be frank, your response is even driven by God's grace. John 6, says this. Look at this verse with me. That no one can come to the Father unless the Father who sent me draws him. Isn't that interesting? So if we say, well, I'll just own a little bit. I heard the good news, but I decided to come. I kind of made... My choice, yes, you made a choice. There's will involved, but it's because your will was moved upon by the Holy Spirit and regeneration and the Father was drawing you and you came. His grace was irresistible to you. Here's what he says later about this very topic. Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. He says that it was God who was rich in mercy. Watch this now. Because of the great love with which he loved us when we were, say it with me, church, dead, you were dead in your trespasses. You weren't sleeping. You weren't having a, a bad day. You weren't just struggling. You, you and I were dead. We were lost in our sins. We were without God, unaware, and none of us were seeking him. But God, who's rich in mercy, abundant in grace, he made us alive together with Christ. Say it, church. By grace you have been saved. Hallelujah, amen. Not by works, not by merit, not by your own deeds, but by grace. 
This is what Matthew 1, 1 through 6 is showing. A beautiful picture of God's grace. I think there's one more verse here. John chapter 1. If I had to pick one verse that I think really settles for me, just who owns salvation? Who, quote unquote, chooses? It'd be these. I love these two verses in which John writes that to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, there's our response, right? He gave the right to become children of God. So how did this happen? They were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, say it, church, but of God. It's God who birthed us. It's not our will. It's not our degree or pedigree, our flesh. And this doctrine, what really is underneath these six verses, when we see God's sovereign grace just beautifully bringing this chronology, this genealogy, bringing this to the, we see it kind of surfacing out of these six verses. Man, we're just brought low. And we're reminded this is solely and wholly a work of God. And that his grace doesn't depend on anything but himself. This is the best news you could ever hear. The best news you could ever hear. Here's why. It relieves you of a lifetime of working on the treadmill that never goes anywhere. Running on this treadmill of good works. Trying to stack up your pens. You know, line up your credits. Only to find at the end, guess what? It's not enough. And who isn't just worn out from trying harder and acting better and then realizing suddenly, oh, it's never gonna be good enough. Man, there's the condition of the human soul. There's the predicament every person at some point finds themselves in. They look back and they see a, a list of mistakes and sins and errors they see a life of things they wish they hadn't have done and the should'ves and the could'ves. They see closets full of bones and skeletons that they hope no one finds out. They wonder, how can I make up for this? What can I do? And our enemy, Satan, tries to deceive people into thinking, there's something you can do. Work harder. Get better. Do more. And so we form these lists of things that we think will justify us to God, will make us right, will cleanse us when none of that ever will. And sadly, most folks don't even know that until it's too late. But here's the great news. Jesus Christ has satisfied every demand that God had for the payment of sin in himself. And he offers that righteousness to those who would simply receive him by believing him. That's why it's called grace. You don't deserve it and you didn't earn it, but you get it. Oh, grace is wonderful. That's why this is the best news in the world. And if you find that this is the worst news, it's just an indication. It's a signal. Pride is still operating in your life. You've got tree trunks of pride deeply rooted. You feel like you've got to have a say-so in it, a hand in it. And God would come to you this morning He'd want to release you from the chains of pride that are strangling your soul. 
He wants to break the bondage that's actually sending you to hell by showing you his glory in the face of Christ, the free gift of his grace. Oh, isn't this the best news you've ever heard? I was thinking about this news, I think it was about a week and a half ago while watching a documentary with Julie. I wasn't planning to think about this news. I was just watching this show called One Child Nation. It's about an hour and a half documentary on China's one child policy for several decades and the consequences of it and the people involved with it. It's quite intriguing, fascinating. In there is a Chinese doctor who in the documentary confesses that she's performed 50,000 or more abortions in order to comply with China's one child policy for those years. And you can begin to hear the guilt, condemnation in her voice as she's talking. And she's, she's looking for ways to make this right. She's trying to think, how do I pacify whoever is up there, this deity I know exists? How do I get forgiveness? How do I find a way through this? Because, and you can, just, you can just hear it in the, in the audio. You can feel it in the video. You're just like, man, she's burdened. In fact, I'll have you watch this 47 seconds I want to see if you can sense this and feel this. And this Chinese doctor, watch what she says about, about how she's trying to make things right. Watch this. You know what's sad about that? Is that that 108-year-old monk perverts the gospel, gives false hope. So she stays on the treadmill thinking, okay, I'll treat infertility with as little money as possible and maybe I'll earn my way there. And she's missing the best news in all the world that Jesus Christ came and paid the full penalty, yes, for all of your sin. And if you'd believe in his name, that grace is enough. Church, are you hearing this? That grace is enough, yes, for your closet of skeletons as well as hers. For all the bones in your past, for all the sins you wish you could forget but Satan tries to remind you of daily, for all the times you wish that you could undo, for all the words you want to take back, all of hers. But there is a much better way than trying to, to earn the gift because you never can earn it. Unholy people can never merit a holy God's favor on their own. It can't be done. We don't have a strong enough will, enough good works. It must be God acting on our behalf by his gracious character. And he did so in Jesus Christ. Beginning with Abraham, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and insert names 
throughout history of people who were on the outside, but God graciously beckoned them, beckoned to them with his grace, gave them the power to respond. And in that moment, they went from the outside in, not because of anything they did, but all because of what God did. Amen. That's why the gospel is not a list that we pass out. That's not good news, by the way. Amen? (laughs) If I give you more to-dos, there's no good news in that. The gospel's good news precisely because it's a list of of what's been done and by whom it's been done. Jesus has paid all of our debt in full to God. This is the good news of grace that we offer to the world at Christmas. I encourage you to swim deep in the oceans of grace this week. Read the genealogies and revel in the beauty of God's mercy when he extended it to people based on his purpose, based on his will, based on his sovereign power and thank the Lord daily that when you heard the word of grace, you responded with his power. He brought you from the outside in. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.